This is a Federal News Network podcast. Besides the omnibus budget package, Congress is dealing with a few other issues this week, like postal reform. But it's a short week, as we learned from Bloomberg Government Deputy News Director Lauren Duggan. And Lauren, the omnibus packages that are coming forth to be voted on sometime during this week, presumably to get to the president's desk, they have to finish those votes this week before they go on recesses. So tell us what the schedule for that would look like. Right. So this omnibus package is going to be the top priority in the House and the Senate this week, trying to fund the government for fiscal 2022, which, as we know, started October 1st. But there's been delays over time and everything has been operating under a continuing resolution. So um, it may be a heavy lift to get this through both chambers by Friday night at midnight um, going into Saturday. So The House and Senate leadership are going to be working their members trying to figure out the way to get this through as they digest everything that's in a package that covers every agency in the federal government that's covered by appropriations. So um, the House will likely go first because their week is truncated. As you mentioned, they're only here through about Wednesday afternoon. And then all of the Democrats are headed up to Philadelphia for their annual retreat, which is the first one, by the way, they've done in person in a long time. And, you know, hopefully they'll have for them, they'll have this feather in their cap of passing a government funding package. It would then go over to the Senate where, as we know, things can happen really quickly or they can be dragged out. So one of the goals in the House will be to get this over to them with enough time in the Senate to process it, get over any procedural hurdles and try to get it to Biden by the end of Friday so he can keep the government open in the weekend. All right. So House Democrats would rather be in Philadelphia. What do the Republicans do while the Democrats are in Philadelphia? Do they go to Florida or something? Um, They may go there, but often they'll go back home and, you know, meet with their constituents and do the normal work there. Um, The parties do this. It's a tradition for them to take a break at some point early in the year to go and do some planning for the rest of the year. They had actually, the Democrats had hoped to do this in February, postponed it because of COVID, and now they're getting really together in person and doing this for the first time. So um, we'll see what comes out of that, if they have any bold announcements that they'll want to make. On the Senate side, they are taking Wednesday off to do a similar thing. The House, or I'm sorry, the Senate Democrats and the Senate Republicans will meet separately in town. They'll be back then for votes on Thursday, presumably, and probably dealing with this omnibus package still just based on how much time it can take to process it. Got it. And well, I mean, one of the things in the State of the Union speech that got a lot of play by the president was still pushing the build back better business. Would that be perhaps part of the Democratic agenda, that that build back better bill? Or do you think they're spend their time figuring out how to make sure they get reelected, you know, a few months from now. I've long maintained that the idea of a budget reconciliation bill, which is the process they were trying to use to push Build Back Better, remains alive because it's a vehicle that you only need 50 votes to get through the Senate. So maybe it's not the broad sweeping, as it was out of the House, $1.75 trillion spending package that had some offsets. But maybe there's a smaller menu of things that Democrats can pull out of that, whether it's the climate change provisions or some of the the family-oriented things that the president talked about, like childcare payments or additional child tax credits, something like that. If they can find a package of spending or tax credits that are money going out rather than bringing money in, and then also have enough offsets to make it a package that somebody like Joe Manchin is happy with, maybe with some deficit reduction, as well as, you know, offsetting some of the new spending or new initiatives that are in there, there may be a path forward for something, whether they call it Build Back Better or calling it I forget he used a phrase like building for America or something like in a speech like that. 
so elements of this remain alive. You know, they had talked about chunking it up at the end of last year, coming into this year. So I, I think the Democrats will talk, see what they can do. The House Democrats have already done their part as far as they're concerned. It's what can get through the Senate, what can get 50 Democrats plus Kamala Harris on board. So sure. I think that agenda is alive. But that may not happen this week. Well, maybe a couple of weeks or even months into the future. We are speaking with Lauren Duggan, deputy news director at Bloomberg Government. And what about the postal reform? Because that seemed promising that it would finally get pushed over the line. What's the status there? It could go over the line this week. There's been a lot of bipartisanship for that in both chambers. The House passed a bill, sent it over. Um, there was a little hiccup on a technical side that kept the Senate from doing it before they went on a recess recently. But they're doing a cloture vote tonight. Um, if they can get 60 senators for that, it'll be teed up for a vote on final passage. It provided there's no changes between now and that passage vote, it would head to the president's desk. And this would be a pretty significant change for the post office. A lot of it deals with this pre-funding requirement they've had for healthcare and shifting away from that um, and also allowing them to do some additional things to raise revenue. So it's a, it is a rare piece of bipartisan legislation that's a pretty big deal. Um, it's not universally supported because if it were, they wouldn't have needed all, all these cloture votes and procedural steps. But I think there could be a win here for folks who have looked to fix the Postal Service or elements of it for a long time. All right. And I wanted to ask you, I mean, there's been a lot of talk and certainly the war in Ukraine focused a lot of people in Congress on that. And there was demonstrations of that during the State of the Union. Is there anything Congress will be preoccupied with otherwise? It doesn't sound like there's a lot they can do because, you know, obviously the United States is not at war and is not planning to declare war there. Well, they are weighing and had to weigh this request from the administration for $10 billion to to use to help with operations. Um, as the president made clear, he's not sending troops into Ukraine, but he is thinking of about what do we do to shore up other parts of Europe where we do have alliances, particularly NATO, and guarantees if there's an invasion of a NATO country, we are supposed to you know, come to the rescue there and, and be part of any sort of military action there. So they will be looking at that. Um, they will undoubtedly be thinking more about sanctions. Um, they had talked about sanctions legislation before the invasion. Now that it's happened, they could be looking at that again. The administration obviously has a lot of powers it's already used to sanction government institutions, individuals in Russia, but I wouldn't be surprised if there's still a push to do more on that front, hold hearings, see what's happened. Um, so I, Ukraine is going to remain in the headlines and it's also going to remain top of mind for for congress you know there's also a lot of talk right now about china and what to do there and concerns about taiwan so i wouldn't be surprised if we kept hearing more about that there's legislation pending to deal with competition with china so foreign policy is in the minds of a lot of people in Congress as they, they weigh all this domestic stuff as well, like government spending and things like the Build Back Better reconciliation package. And also, just before the State of the Union, the president got some nominees through the Senate. It was kind of an odd late-minute vote, and they put it out on Twitter and the cloakroom account, strange. But there were two assistant defense secretaries. There were two members of the Merit Systems Protection Board, a third one to go, that one's in limbo, and a few others. Will there be more of that, do you think, some more quick confirmation votes to get some of these nominations cleared? They're always chipping away at this. It's often what fills time on the floor when they're waiting for other things, like an omnibus to come over. This week, we might see a deputy U.S. trade representative confirmed, and we may see the head of ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, go through. So they, that's on the floor side. Um, and then the hearings are continuing in committees and markups as well of those nominations. Some of the higher profile ones have been held up. If you've been paying attention to the Fed nominees, um, 
both Chairman Powell for another term as chairman and then other members of the Board of Governors, those have been stuck because Republicans have boycotted the votes and nothing can happen if you don't have a majority of the members. So in evenly split committees, that's tied things up. But if they can get those moving, I would see those coming to the floor and for votes soon. And then the, obviously the marquee nomination right now and the one that um, the president talked about as well in the State of the Union is the Supreme Court nominee who started meeting with senators last week. We'll continue that and head for a hearing and then presumably a markup in floor vote. So nominees are always present, maybe under the surface, um, and some of them pop up and get confirmed when you least expect it when these deals open up, um, especially as events warrant. So that's always something on our radar. Lauren Duggan is Deputy News Director at Bloomberg Government. Thanks so much. Thank you. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was a leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing We were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, And then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks Um, as part of her job. She worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, So that was probably the the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also 
reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, 
Let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the the art of of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, And I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my my mind to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about. As a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. As we continue to face COVID-19, we're now facing flu season. Influenza has the potential to infect millions, putting lives and the healthcare system at risk. Now more than ever, it's essential to protect yourself from influenza by getting the flu vaccine. The flu vaccine is safe and effective and can't give you the flu. To protect yourself and those at highest risk, get your flu vaccine. Learn more at michigan.gov flu. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.